Hi everyone, welcome to an episode of Inquest of the Wicked. This is your favorite ugly rat baby Terry. Now and I had an amazing opportunity to interview James L. Sutter. To get you a little excited about it, and to those that don't know, he is the original creative director and co-creator of Starfinder. I wanted to start the episode by letting you know about his young adult novel that's coming out called Dark Hearts. It comes out June 6th, the day after this is released. I urge you to check it out if it interests you. Um, we are Both Nao and I have already pre-ordered it. Also, um, there will be several things we'll mention in the show itself during the interview. Everything we mention will be linked in the show notes. I urge you to check them all out. James was a absolute blast to chat with, and I hope maybe in the future we can do it again. And of course, if you enjoy the episode, please let us know. Um, I would love to do this again. This was such a fun opportunity. Okay, I'll leave you on that note. Um, and now I was going to take the intro now. All right, guys. So today we have a special guest, James L. Sutter. He is the co-creator of Pathfinder and Starfinder RPGs, as well as being Starfinder's first creative director and the executive editor for the Pathfinder novel line. He's the author of the new queer young adult romance novel, Dark Hearts, as well as two Pathfinder novels, plus multiple short stories, video games, and comic books, including the forthcoming Starfinder comic series, Starfinder, Angels of the Drift, which launches in June. Welcome to the show, James. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for cutting out some time to be here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Sounds like you do have a very busy schedule. What with two releases <laughs> in one month. Congrats, it's, by the way. Yeah, thank you. That was definitely not a thing that I had planned on. That's just sort of how it happened. And so I went, oh, okay. So this month is going to be all about just trying to make sure people know these projects exist. And that's where we come in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, we'll try yes. to we'll try to get it out as much as possible for you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's you know it's such a weird thing in publishing where you know the publishers obviously they do their part, but so much is you you write the project and then you just have to find ways to tell people about it it's not even necessarily selling people on it just making folks know it exists mm -hmm. yeah it's funny like as a writer you then have to be also so many you have to wear so many other hats like publicist and you know like it, it's yeah. very self-driven yeah no you're basically if you're a sort of independent author it's basically a small business you know for for all the time that you spend writing there's also a lot of like Oh, quarterly tax filings and all just sort of random <laughs> entrepreneur stuff where you were like, I did not expect to have to do this writing about, you know, dragons and kissing. Uh, with all these projects going on, do you find that you like thrive in that type of environment? Do you uh, do you enjoy like having so much going on all at once? I do. I mean, I always have. I'm sort of a dilettante. You know, I've always had, you know, various different game projects and fiction and music and things going on at the same time. And I find it keeps me fresh to be able to jump from genre to genre or media to media. So it's nice to work on a novel for a little bit and then work on a comic. Um I will say that since I left uh, the game industry and started writing full time, I've discovered more and more the joy of just being able to focus on one project, like really dive into a novel and just write it till it's done. That's something that I didn't have for the first mm, 20 years of my career. And so it's it's kind of a nice uh, it's a nice bonus to be able to just live in one world. How do you find that focus? I'm curious. Oh my God, I'm... <laughs> I was going to be a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the honest truth is that uh, is that I often don't. Like, I'm just as distractible as everybody else. Uh, the thing mm -hmm. that's been working for me recently for trying to really buckle down is this thing called the Pomodoro Method, where you, like, set a timer and just say, okay, for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to focus exclusively on this one task. And then when the timer goes off, I can take a break, you know, check my email, whatever. 
but that I find helps a lot because the willpower to just sit down and work for six hours, like uh, as a freelancer, I do not have that. Like I'm living at home. There's laundry to be done. I need to, you know, <laughs> cook lunch for my wife or whatever, you know, but if, if it's only 45 minutes, I can tell myself, look, anything that comes up can wait for 45 minutes. And so it makes it much easier to just focus. And then of course, once you're in the zone, it's a lot easier to stay in the zone, but that mm. those first five words are always harder than the next 500. It's all yeah. about getting the ball rolling. Um, so I, um, I did during some, like uh, the pre stuff I was looking up, uh, one of the things I noticed, uh, got mentioned is like, there was a time, especially during like, uh, before you went freelance when you were doing a lot of the creative stuff you don't actually remember creating like some of the things <laughs> uh, yeah no i mean that that happens especially in a group context like with pathfinder mm -hmm. or starfinder when you're working with a big team of like really amazing folks um you know there's some stuff that i know like okay this was my thing and i created this whole cloth but a mm -hmm. lot of the time it's sort of an all hands on deck approach and so there's plenty of stuff where I, I've opened books and seen my name in the author list and go, God, what did I, I think I wrote this chapter, but it might've been one of the other ones, you know, especially because when I was an editor and developer at Paizo, uh, you know, I would write sections for books or write entire books, but then I would also, you know, be working on them. And so once you've rewritten a chapter, it can become hard to remember whether you wrote it in the first place or not, like which ideas came from the author versus which ones were added in development and whatnot. So mm. yeah, there's plenty of stuff where I can look at that and go, Oh, that kind of sounds like me or that kind of sounds like Wes Schneider or James Jacobs or Eric Mona, you know, like I, it, but at that point you're almost guessing based on the style rather than actually remembering <laughs> who wrote what, like I have to go, I have to go check my computer to see the files uh, and go like, oh, I guess I, I guess I did write those monsters. Okay, cool. <laughs> what was the most surprising thing that like came out of that where you like you you saw you're like, oh, I wrote that. Oh, and just I'm oh, curious. I don't I don't even remember. But like, if you ask me, uh, which monsters I wrote for say the first Pathfinder Bestiary, um, I have no idea. I know I wrote like at least a dozen of them. I think the Basilisk was one of them, and mm. that is all i remember there's so many others where it's like yeah it could have been me it could have been anybody else so how did i know this is a big question but like how did it all start like when you were co-creating uh pathfinder starfinder like what was kind of like the drive for that so uh well for me personally you know i got into working in the role-playing game industry because i had come out of college uh where i thought i was going to do journalism and because in college journalism is all you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you, you know, go have adventures and write about it. Like it was very, at least for me, like uh, that was, those are the sorts of stories that I was writing um, where I wanted to be like a rock critic, you know, do the almost famous thing. Uh, mm. And then I got out of college and realized that the newspapers, you know, the local suburban newspapers didn't want to pay for that. <laughs> and so I was kind of looking around trying to find some job that let me write, but didn't didn't make me report, you know, because I was not a very good reporter. Like I loved the words and I kind of hated the gathering of information. So I found that the uh, Dungeons and Dragons magazines, as well as Amazing Stories, uh, were based out of, uh, were at this company called Paizo based nearby where I lived in Seattle. And so I saw they were hiring an uh, editor-in-chief for Amazing Stories magazine. And so I 
you know, essentially cold called the CEO of the company and said, hey, I am totally unqualified for that job, but <laughs> here's what I can do. And like, here's my portfolio, because I had written a bunch of articles at that point. Um, do you have any jobs that might be appropriate for me? Um, and the CEO of Paizo, Lisa Stevens, uh, I guess maybe just because she liked my hustle, like brought me in and interviewed me and said, well, you know, hey, we don't have a job right now, but let me see what I can do. And so she ended up giving me a freelancer job, finding images for products on their web store at a Nikola JPEG. And so that was my <laughs> that was my entry into the industry. And then that turned into an internship, which turned into a customer service job. And then within maybe a year or so, I ended up uh, as an assistant editor on Dungeon Magazine. And so then I worked on the magazines for uh, another couple of years there. And then the company, uh, you know, we had making the Dungeons and Dragons magazines had been our big thing, um, but that was all licensed from Wizards of the Coast and Wizards mm -hmm. uh, took the license back. And so we all kind of looked at each other and went, Oh no, like we don't, this is like writing D&D &D adventures is all we know how to do. Like, how are we going to support ourselves? Um, and so we decided to create the Pathfinder adventure path and that whole setting. And so we could do, you know, Dungeons and Dragons adventures, but with our own world, um, with our mm. own IP. And then that quickly spun into a whole role-playing game. Once fourth edition came out and we wanted to keep with the OGL for 3.5. Uh, and so we made Pathfinder, which was kind of 3.5 plus plus. And then that really just took off. And kind of overnight, we had this, you know, viable business and we just sort of held on and rode, <laughs> rode the horse as far as it would take us. And so, you know, I got to do all sorts of cool stuff. You know, like I said, I was an editor, I was a developer. Um, I got to be in charge of the novel line because I was sort mm -hmm. of, I got tapped early on as the fiction guy, like not... I didn't have a ton of experience when I started there, but I'd sold a couple of short stories, um, which was more than a lot of other folks in the company had who are more game based. Mm -hmm. So they went, OK, you're the fiction guy. Go. And so <laughs> I ended up like I learned so much from editing all that fiction and you know commissioning from all these great authors and really seeing the process of a, of a novel go from the initial idea to the final draft. And doing that for 40 books is really what taught me how to do it on my own. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I got to write novels. I got to write, do a bunch of game development, you know, and I really, my favorite part of game development is sort of early on where you've got just this big blank map and you got to fill it in. And so with Pathfinder, there were some of my favorite projects were either the early stuff where it was like, okay, here's Kionin you know, this is where our elves are from. Just, you get to just put whatever you want here. You know, same with, <laughs> I did, you know, Belkson or even like Varicia, which was our first real sort of like core setting for Pathfinder. Uh, that was, you know, James Jacobs's baby, but it was still mostly empty map. Um, you know, he had a few locations he was really into. And so he just handed it to me and was like, put stuff in here. And so, one, <laughs> you know, one of my first Pathfinder assignments was just filling out Varicia, which would come to be, this huge center of uh, sort of the emotional heart of the campaign setting for a lot of people. Um, and so then, uh, you know, I also, over the years, I got really into finding little corners of the setting that other, you know, the other devs didn't care about as much and just saying like, Hey, well, you guys could just give me a blank check to do whatever I want here. And mm. frequently the answer was like, yeah, sure. So I got to, you know, do stuff like, 
completely develop the uh, like the fairy realm, you know, the first mm-hmm. which we call the first world and all of those gods there or, you know, doing I had the city called Karamaga that was really my baby. Um, but one of those things was the solar system, because the Pathfinder setting is all based on Galarian, which is this one planet. But we knew there were other planets in the solar system. So I said, you know, I'm a big science fiction fan. Can I go ahead and just make the rest of the solar system? And everybody kind of went, yeah, sure. Why not? Go for it. (laughs) Um, And that became this book called Distant Worlds, which got really popular with the fans. And then was also, you know, it had created this sort of framework so that when the time came to do Starfinder, it was a pretty natural choice to make that the setting for the game. You know, we're going to do Pathfinder in the future. Well, here's the, mm-hmm. here's its whole solar system, you know? So that became the Pact Worlds and was also to a large extent, I think what got me the gig as the creative director, because, you know, here I was so familiar with the foundation of the setting because mm-hmm. it was the step, the book that I'd written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I then got to, you know, lead, lead that team, which was really, you know, there were, a whole bunch of people on that project. Basically, everybody in the company had their hands in it to some extent, whether the design team working on classes or the developers working on the setting and the, you know, the gameplay and, you know, all the way down to, you know, the customer service team playtesting the game for us was invaluable and really caught us in a lot of uh, stuff that would not have been as good had they not called us on it. So it was really a, a full team effort. And then I guess to finish out the story, uh, you know, I guided that team as creative director through from sort of the game's inception all the way through its launch in 2017. And then its launch was so successful. Like it was such a smash hit at Gen Con that, you know, we all got to go and feel like rock stars, you know, looking at the line around the uh, around the convention center to get a copy of the book that on the way home, I was just thinking, this is this is really as good as it gets in the game industry. Like this is the top um and so i decided to go out on a high note and i quit a couple of weeks later um and really <laughs> surprised the heck out of uh my coworkers. but i just felt like you know i think i did what i came to do um and so you know i of course i can't stay away i've still written adventures and stuff freelance and now i'm writing the starfinder comic book mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. uh that was sort of my cue to like all right i have completed games Let's go try to make this novels thing go. Uh, and yeah, you definitely deserve that positive reception. It's been great to play and really like well, the whole you. system and the rules and the stories have been super enjoyable. Yeah. And really, there's there's so much in there. And for a project that took, I think, was it a year to put together? It was one year from Damn. when, you know, Eric Mona said, all right, we're doing it uh, to when we had to ship the book. And that is. That is a for a book of this size, uh, that would be ambitious, but we had to build the game first. So, you know, to build an entire game and then like all the books to support it to come out at launch, you know, because you have to have the, you know, the core rule book, which needed to have not just the rules, but also setting material and starship combat and conversion mm-hmm. rules. You know, like there was about a million pages of content that we had to squash in there. Plus, we needed to get the Alien Archive out and like an adventure, you know, all of this stuff that goes along with it. So, yeah, it was a fun year in a lot of ways because like creatively, it was very satisfying. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was also, without doubt, the most b- brutal march of a year that we 
that at least I had ever had in my t- 13 years at the company. You know, it was just a grind. Um, but it, you know, uh, I can't argue with the result. It's such a tight game that the fact that it only took a year surprises the fuck out of me. <laughs> I mean, we had a lot of really great people working on it. And it was, you know, like I say, it was all hands on deck. Um, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you say that it feels like a tight game. You know, it was our our goal was to have something that was like Pathfinder had the mm-hmm. same amount of sort of crunch and you know, customizability that people expect, but also we knew, you know, and this was before Pathfinder second edition, obviously, like they learned a lot from the Starfinder process as well. Mm-hmm. But the original Pathfinder was very much a game like, like Dungeons and Dragons had been before it was a game for people who already knew how to play the game. You know, um, I feel mm-hmm. like there was a long history of the Dungeons and Dragons rule books being kind of like textbooks. Um, and when we did Pathfinder, we kind of had to do the same thing because we were in such a rush. But with Starfinder, we really wanted to make the game easier to learn. So it needed to be just as complex, but easier to learn both in its presentation and also in just sort of simplifying the rules a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, we we had a framework to work on, but really there was a lot of stuff that got torn down and rebuilt with an eye toward trying to make it more accessible. Mm-hmm. Well, we're both like we've both played years and years of Pathfinder one, yes. a bit of two E, and a lot of Starfinder as well. And Starfinder really does feel like a step forward from Pathfinder. Like, feels like you crystallized a lot of what was learned there, yeah. while staying so true to Pathfinder as well. Like, it's it's such a good mix of being approachable from, I think, a general standpoint, and also from a one E background, but also so new and exciting at the same time. So we just we took to it like we loved it. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, and that's that's really the advantage that we had was we had, you know, 10 years of looking at Pathfinder and saying, okay, what are the things that always sort of become a problem? You know, like, what are the hard parts about teaching somebody Pathfinder? And like, what can we do to fix that? And so we really, uh, we had a great advantage um, by having, I mean, not just having that game to base it on, but having the same people who had worked on Pathfinder working on Starfinder, um, mm. you know, that was very, very helpful. But uh, yeah, I I think it worked. Um, you know, it's always it's always <laughs> hard to judge your own work. But, so do uh, we. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's what's funny is that it's true not just of the rules. We also learned a lot about setting design and sort of story and game premise from Pathfinder. So, for instance, with Starfinder, uh, one of the reasons we have the gap, which is that, you know, big history uh, black hole that nobody knows what happened. Like part of that was just necessary because if Pathfinder is, uh, you know, if Starfinder is the future of Pathfinder, but we still want people to play Pathfinder, you can't have every Starfinder party just be like, oh, let's look up who uh, who won that Pathfinder adventure path. Like, yeah. let's see, <laughs> let's see how all that works out. You know, we knew we needed to have some mystery there and the gap helped with that, but also it really helped with a thing we'd noticed from Pathfinder, which was when we created the Pathfinder setting, we put all this, you know, great backstory, all these cool ideas in the past. You know, we've got, you know, all the, you know, the Aslant and all these fallen empires. And like, that's really cool because I at least really enjoy the feeling of being in a world that has a lot of history and Mm -hmm. has, you know, these ancient ruins and things you can stumble upon. 
but we went so all out that there's so much that got relegated to the history and Pathfinder that people really wanted to play with. And you kind of couldn't without time travel or sort of yeah, finding it's various contrived ways. Stone, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. And so with Starfinder, we said, okay, well, let's do a game where there isn't that much past so that everything that's cool is something you can engage with right now. Like mm-hmm. all our best ideas Let's put them in the current moment. Let's put them on different planets. Like, let's just have it be things that the players can always interact with. Uh, And I think that that really worked. I think that contributes to that feeling of sort of exploration and like uh, the whole universe is at your fingertips. Was that like the starting point for Starfinder for you or or like because like you have a year to make this project, right? So where do you like start with that? Well, I mean, the first question was really just what is this game going to be? You know, is it because even in the beginning, like there were, there was sort of nothing set. We knew it was going to be a science fantasy game. We knew it was going to be sort of a more futuristic version of Pathfinder, but we didn't know anything beyond that. We didn't even know, will it be the Pathfinder setting just advanced, you know, X number of centuries into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, That was an open question in the beginning. And some people wanted to do something totally different so that we could just have that fun of creating whole cloth. But I think there was enough joy around the idea of, yeah, but wouldn't it be cool to see how things develop, you know, to be able like the fun of like Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, right, is like Mm -hmm. seeing those ties between the two. And so I think there were so many things where, you know, somebody would look at each other and be like, okay, okay, but hear me out here. Hell Knight Citadel ships. You know, like, how cool would that be? We'd all go, yeah. oh, my God, that would be can't so say rad. no to that. 100%. Yeah, and so pretty quickly, uh, the idea that it'll be, you know, Pathfinder, but science fiction uh, really took hold. And then there was a lot of questions of, you know, what do we pull forward? How do we handle stuff like, you know, I said, like The Gap, um, you know, making both games viable at the same time. How do we handle faster than light travel? You know, the question of the drift, uh, which I really like as a way of, sort of making our hyperspace distinct from say star Wars or, you know, warp speed or whatever. Uh, the idea of this plane that every time you open a portal, it rips a little bit of the other planes off. Like that for me was just so much more fun. You know, it has a little bit more of that, like event horizon portal to hell kind of thing, but it's, it's even more random. Like I love weird and random opportunities to let GMs really get creative And so as soon as there was this idea of like, oh, it's the hyperspace dimension, which is also kind of an interdimensional cancer, you know, it's like growing and ripping pieces off of other planes of the afterlife. And like, what do the other gods think about that? And they sort of went, oh, this is this is a story. You know, this is a hook that I can really play with. Um, Yeah, that's narrative fuel right there. Yeah. But then, you know, pretty quickly, a lot of things just became the logistical questions of like okay, what are our classes going to be? You know, how are we going to make them different? How are we going to make sure that we're serving all of the sort of science fiction and fantasy tropes that we want to serve and not just doing Pathfinder in the future, right? Like, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you can say, okay, the soldier is basically a fighter. You know, it fills that role. But something like uh, the Solarian was really brand new and was sort of our answer to like, how do you play Jedi? (laughs) <laughs> you know, because um, there's gonna be anytime you've got a science fantasy game, people are going to think Star Wars. And, you know, we don't want to rip that off, but we want to make mm-hmm. sure that 
you can tell Star Wars and you can tell Star Trek and Alien and all these different classic stories within this rule set. So what do we do? Um, and so sort of making big lists of all the archetypal characters and games and things that we wanted to draw on uh, really helped us figure out what uh, classes and what uh, species we needed to have in there uh, for players. And, you know, right. Like, and that really guided a lot of, you know, there was a question of, okay, well, are we going to have elves and dwarves and all those things be our main species, or are we going to make something new? And in a lot of cases, we chose to make something new just because we sort of felt like if you want space elves and space dwarves, like those rules are in the book, but they're just mm -hmm. in the back because Pathfinder and frankly, a lot of other games have already kind of covered that. Yeah. Um, and as much as I love the Pathfinder take on, you know, on those different species, you know, like I'm a big fan of the elves. I've done a lot of work on them as sort of like aliens. Uh, I, th I think we wanted to have a little more creative freedom. And so that's where we got these, you know, playable races, like, you know, the Sheeran, the bug people, or the, you know, the Vesk, our big sort of like lizard folk type, mm -hmm. uh, warriors. Um, and like, for instance, uh, I knew that, uh, Yasoki needed to be in there. Um, the rat oh folk. God. Um, yes. from the beginning and i remember having actually that debate with eric mona the publisher um and he was saying you know when i originally was like okay here's our here's the species breakdown i want and he was looking at the list and he was like seriously rat folk you're gonna put those in there and i was like dude i get that they're not your jam but i promise you at every table there is going to be one player probably who did theater in high school who is going to talk with a squeaky voice and like sit on the floor so that they're shorter than everybody else. And they are going to love <laughs> the hell out of these little, like adorable, bizarre uh, furry creatures. Um, so in the podcast, Terry plays a Yusoki. Oh, and... it's my favorite race <laughs> without a doubt. Like... See, and that's, that's and the thing. It's, also, it... it's the one we get the most fan art of as well. Yes, exactly. Actually, exactly well and i you know i remember even that first uh like right out of the gate i remember the yosoki miniatures were just flying off the shelves to begin with and i remember sort of showing that to eric and being like eh? <laughs> <laughs> he said he was a good sport about it but yeah the, and that was that was another thing was really just trying to think about all the different player types mm -hmm. and how do you build a game that appeals to all of these different people because that's a, a thing that is you know, started with Pathfinder, where back in second edition Nose of Dragons, a lot of the campaign settings were very specific. You know, so we all grew up with Ravenloft and Dark Sun and Planescape and all these things that had a very specific flavor. And the conventional wisdom was you need a specific flavor to set yourself apart. And with Pathfinder, we kind of did the opposite and tried to be everything to everyone by mm. giving folks, you know, we'll give you every different flavor of setting. They're just all different countries. So, you know, if you want the Gothic feel, you can go to Ustalov. And if you want Vikings, you can go to the land of the Limnorm Kings, you know, like. And so with Starfinder, especially when you've got different planets, we had kind of the same thing where we knew you're going to be able to find whatever weird alien world you want. But we need to make sure that the rule set supports all the different types of play, whether you are somebody who does really grim space horror, or if you're somebody like me who, you know, I'm constantly laughing at the game table. Like I, I like all of my games to turn into sort of an 80s style action comedy. You know, it's always, 
it's always that diehard element where like yeah it's it's action but everybody's cracking jokes and just like laughing with their friends like that is the perfect game to me so uh yeah just making sure everybody was everybody was served as much as possible literally my android from the podcast is based on 80s action heroes because yeah (laughs) it's very funny that you mentioned you're hitting all the notes um (laughs) yeah so our gm couldn't be here today but he wanted me to ask you what your favorite class and species are from starfinder well the species is easy uh because i think it's the sheeran for me um and i think the thing that i love so much about them is there's this little thing that I wrote just sort of when I was trying to figure out, okay, what makes these bug people interesting? And it's the idea that they used to be part of a hive mind and, you know, the hive mind controlled them through these sort of, you know, organs in their brain, essentially just like, you know, press button, give reward, you know, that kind of thing. Um, they're And they're all just sort of were mindless drones until they got this divine gift of free will and got to split off. Um, and so, A, I really like that idea of they are very libertarian because they, you know, freedom of choice is this, the whole basis for their species. But at the same time, they are still fundamentally, you know, hive creatures. So they're very communal by nature. And I really like showing that idea of like, you can believe very much in freedom and also believe in helping people and being nice. You know, there's a little bit of a, I didn't realize it at the time, but there's a little bit of a uh, creed in there somewhere. Uh, but at the same time, the thing that I like about that is this idea of uh, choice bliss or like basically these creatures can, because they still have those reward centers in their brain, anytime they make a choice, they get a little burst of, you know, dopamine. And so just the act of selecting something off a menu gives them a reward and is essentially self-drugging. And so you have these, what they call option junkies, these Sheeran who just get addicted to making meaningless choices and just riding that high. And so you'll just find somebody, you know, a Sheeran who's the equivalent of a heroin addict, but what they're doing is wandering around a shoe store just being like, I could buy that one or that one or that one. And they never do. They just go around thinking about it. And that just seemed so fun and alien for their society that I immediately fell in love with them. And of course, uh, the iconic for them, Keskadai, is also just such a study in contrasts because he's, you know, he's sort of the medic of the team, but he's also a priest of the death goddess. And I love that idea of like, your medic is also a death priest. So like, they're going to try to save you, but you know, if he gets it wrong, that's all just part of the cycle you know (laughs) it's fine (laughs) tell for he says hello um and of course he's a very very brief aside i saw the cover for the second uh that like uh issue of uh, oh yeah drift got released i don't know if it was yesterday i saw it yesterday but the sharon art oh so good yeah yeah no there's such a rad fucking cover we're getting some great covers for this one and it's funny because i don't even always know in advance uh they just pop up and I go, wait, whoa, what? That's the cover, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and they've always been awesome. Um, and also, you know, the all the art in the series is so much fun. I've really been loving working with uh, Edumena, the artist, and also, you know, color uh, or colorist uh, Adriano Augusto. Like, he's also great. And so uh, it's but it's really fun to watch Edu both 
illustrate existing aliens and starships and stuff, you know, stuff from Starfinder that's that folks will immediately be able to look at and name. But also he just brings so much stuff out of his brain where he'll just draw, you know, three familiar aliens and five new ones. And I love that because I love that feeling of the universe is so much bigger than we've even cataloged yet. You know, I want that Moss Eisley Cantina feel all the time. So it was really fun <laughs> to get an artist who was excited about that. Oh, and I guess I never answered. <laughs> I sort of <laughs> on a tangent. Hey, that's okay. Want, that's okay. I wanted to talk about Keskadai being a you know a single dad, which I also love about that character. But um, going back to favorite classes, I think right. It's hard to say. I think the Salarian is the most unique of the classes we came up with. I feel like that's the one where. I really hadn't seen mechanics like that done before. And so I think the design team just did an incredible job with that. Uh, But I think that in terms of just who I like playing, mm, it might be one of the spell casting classes. It might, it might be like a mystic. Um, Although that said, I also really love the simplicity of just playing, you know, a soldier or somebody who just barrels straight ahead and, I don't know. Uh, magic users are fun, but they can get awfully fiddly. And sometimes you just want to like kick in the door and blow stuff up. And so yeah. <laughs> soldiers are real good for that. I always find I like alternately want to like have a simple, like kick in the door character in one campaign. And when that's done, it's magic time. Yeah. 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 You got to mix it up. Yeah. Um, are you playing it in a game right now? Just like in your free time? Uh, not in a Starfinder game. I'm playing in a Pathfinder game right now. I've been running that. I was running a Starfinder game earlier in uh, in the pandemic. We did uh, one that was mostly the, the Dawn of Flame AP. Um, mm-hmm. So we ran that for a while, which was super fun because I play with uh, a mix of both, you know, industry folks and just local friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them... Uh, Judy Bauer, who was uh, one of the main editors at Paizo and now over at Dungeons and Dragons, uh, she she was playing this character that was an envoy, and it was this little otter person, like one of these oh, these no. aliens. Yeah. Um, oh yes. But so she was playing a marriage counselor. That was her character, <laughs> and she was just you know an envoy marriage counselor, and you know she built the character that. really um, well. Yeah. So it was hilarious. You know, in every in every scene, she's essentially giving therapy to all these characters, but then she built the character really well mechanically too. So she would, you know, start talking about the feelings and then roll and just nail it. And it's like, well, this, uh, I guess you succeed. And so we would have all these fascinating encounters where marriage counseling like defuses the fight. And it was so much fun. It was just hilarious constantly. Um, But yeah, so I was in a Starfinder campaign for a while. And then uh, we switched over to doing some Pathfinder stuff, the new uh, uh, Gatewalkers AP, because I wrote the first adventure of that, which is sort of like an X-Files, but in Pathfinder. Um, And that was one where the developer in charge of the campaign, you know, hit me up and said, Hey, do you have time to write an adventure? And I went, honestly, like I'm really busy with all these novels. And he was like, okay, but it's going to go to both <laughs> the first world, which is that thing that you poured so much energy into and also other planets, which are that element of the setting you poured so much into. And he showed me the outline and I went, I can't not say yes. 
so I wrote that and it was super fun. Uh, and so I ran my group through that and then I'm now just about to finish out the campaign. Very nice. Are you, are you a forever GM as well? I kind of am, you know, yeah. I've, I've <laughs> I could sense it. Lots of games. Uh, but really the game master is just so much more fun because I like, while it is more work, I really like the performance aspect of it. And like, as a G it's also a little bit greedy because as a GM, you're playing 50% of the time instead of in the party, like you're talking, you know, 10% of the time. (laughs) So if you're a little bit, (laughs) if you like being the center of attention and like, I, I think I know that about myself. Um, you know, it's really fun to be able to like put it all together and make your friends laugh. Like I really love that feeling of eliciting a reaction from a group. And so, you know, I'll still I'll still play when I'm invited, but over the years I've learned I should just do it. Everybody always needs a GM, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like being the drummer, being a drummer. Like every band <laughs> needs a drummer and is, has trouble finding one. So, yeah. if you like no it, no one just needs do a guitarist. It. Yeah, nobody needs a guitarist. Uh, I think we should probably hop into asking you about the graphic novel. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Want to hit us with that blurb, and then we'll go from there? Yeah, yeah so it's, uh, I mean, presumably people listening to this are familiar with Starfinder, so uh, I won't have to go as much into, you know, Starfinder is a science fantasy setting <laughs> about exploring the universe. Well, um, they better know by now. Yeah, exactly. So. But uh, no, so the comic series, it's a five issue arc to start. We'll see if there's more, Um, but it's tied in with the drift crash setting event that or drift crisis that the uh, is going on across the Starfinder new releases. Um, But basically, the idea is the party is all iconics. So it's iconic characters. You've got Navasi, who's the iconic envoy and is kind of our fast talking scoundrel. You've got Obazaya, who's our big Vesk lizard warrior. You've got Keskadai, who I already talked about. Uh, you've got Quig, the mechanic. Um, and then you've also got uh, Siravel, who's the elf and the iconic precog. So she's uh, one of those newer classes where mm-hmm. she can bend time and see glimpses of the future. And so when the comic starts out, they're all already a crew, but they've been having trouble because the drift has been so unreliable. Nobody wants to book passage on their ship. And so they've really been kind of grounded. And uh, then they get an offer from this weird uh, sort of robotic angel type creature whose job is to go around to uncontacted worlds and give them hyperspace technology. Um, And because of the drift problems, he's been shunted out onto Absalom station and needs to book a ride. And so they agree to give him a ride, but he, unfortunately they are not the only people looking for this uncontacted world. And so it quickly becomes a race against uh, exploitation and the problems of first contact. And I think it's a lot of fun. I think it also has, in addition to a lot of explosions and space battles and all that sort of good stuff, I think it's got a lot of heart, you know, that I really focused in, like I said, I've been, um, we mentioned I've been writing young adult romance novels recently, Mm. and I've been trying to take what I learned there, not in terms of making Starfinder all about romance yet, uh, (laughs) but just trying to really focus on character and what each character is wrestling with emotionally. You know, they've all got these sort of ideas or decisions they need to sort of figure out, you know, for instance, for Keskadai, uh, the idea of, is it really, you know, he, he carries around his son uh, his larval child in this little cylinder on his belt. 
And that's been a thing that's been true since the character was first created as this idea of, oh, Sheeran like to take their children around to show them the galaxy so that they, you know, can make decisions for themselves about who they want to be when they grow up. And it's something he believes really strongly in. But then as they find themselves in danger again and again, he has to ask, you know, is it really, uh, am I a good parent if I'm constantly putting my child in danger? Like, do I honor his choice to come with me or do I sort of paternally say, no, you have to go be safe, you know? And so it's, Mm -hmm. every character has got some questions like that, that they're wrestling with. And I really wanted to make sure that while these characters, you know, they are iconic is right in the name, you know, they are meant to represent their class as well as be individual characters, but I still wanted to give them some growth. I still wanted to let them change uh, emotionally and, in their outlook. Uh, and so I think we hit a good balance. Like I, I hope people really leave the comic invested in these characters more than anything. Hmm. And when you, so I believe you were reached out to, uh, to like yeah. they reached out to you to start. So when that happened, did you immediately have this idea or did you have like a few and well, it kind of boiled down to this or like, how was that kind of process? Well, you know, they, so they reached out to me, um, Mark Moreland over at Paizo hit me up, um, which was lovely because, you know, I had always, I've been gone from the company for five plus years now, but even in the beginning, uh, I'd always hoped that there would be Starfinder comics. And so as I was leaving, I was definitely like, Hey Mark, if there are ever Starfinder comics and you need somebody to write them, you just, <laughs> you know, my email. Um, and sure enough, he reached out and said, because I had written also, in addition to being Starfinder's, you know, creative director back at the beginning, I'd also written a bunch of the Pathfinder comics. And so yeah. I had this history with them and with Dynamite. And so uh, I, it was not, it, it just sort of made sense, I think, for a lot of folks, um, which was great for me. But they reached out and said, you know, hey, here's what we want. We know we want a story that's tied into the Drift Crisis. We know kind of that we wanted to start in the packed worlds, but then quickly leave there and go to a new planet. And we also know some of the characters we want to see in the party. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I went great. And so I, you know, took sort of their guidelines, whipped up a pitch. They liked it. Uh, Then I whipped up a full outline of, you know, issue by issue. Here's what's going to happen. And you went back and forth and got feedback on different elements. And then they pretty much turned me loose uh, to just write the whole series. And Dynamite was amazing in just kind of, you know, back in my play, like I would say, Hey, I want to do this. And they would say, cool, go for it. You know, you're, nice. you're the one who knows the story. So tell it the way you want to tell it. Uh, and it was really fun. Of course, there's always back and forth with, you know, working with an artist, you know, there's, you want to make sure you leave some room for them to play as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was really quite smooth and seamless. Uh, now I believe there are, uh, there's a new species and different like rules being introduced yeah. in the graphic novel. Can you speak about any of those or is that? Yeah. Hush, yeah. Hush? So just, uh, no, I, I don't think it's hush hush. I can speak generally. Um, that's cool. but yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So there's, uh, as with path, the pathfinder comics, uh, Pi Zone dynamite always like to put a couple of pages of new rules and stuff that people can incorporate into their home games. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all officially sanctioned created by the developers at Paizo, So it's legit. Um, and yeah, so I brainstormed some ideas with, uh, the d- development team at Paizo, And so it was stuff like new races, like new, uh, new weapons, new gear. I think there's, 
I think there's a new mech in there somewhere. I hope that's Ooh. not too much of a spoiler. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know there's definitely, you know, they were trying to hit stuff that would show up in the comic and also make sense for, you know, the characters. And so it was really a back and forth where like, sometimes I'd write a scene into the comic and say, Hey, can you design me a new spell or a new precog ability that does X? Um, mm. Because I think that would look really cool. And they would go, yeah, sure. And then other times they'd say, hey, we would like to create, you know, why? Can you put this into the comic somehow? Um, mm-hmm. And usually the answer was like, yeah, okay. Like, well, that would make for a fun scene. And so it was really some nice, some nice back and forth. But they definitely tried to build off of the story that I had already written. Yeah, I really like hearing like that this bounce between you, the both of you, and to come up with like both the story and the things that are impacting it and making it playable. That's that's fun. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and the rules are so important, you know. Especially a thing that I learned as the guy in charge of the Pathfinder novel line is you really need to make sure that the fiction always corresponds to the rules. You know, you don't want it to feel too clunky and obvious, but at the same time. The rules in the way I interpret it is the rules are our way of understanding an objective reality that these characters live in. Like Mm -hmm. these are the rules of their universe. So you can't break them. It's not like a, oh, why do I have to do it this way? It's like, this is just how their world works. This is just our attempt to describe it. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really important every time I write, you know, magic or something into a scene I always, you know, have a little aside in the notes in my script that says, hey, here's the spell. Here's the math on how it works. Um, and sometimes, you know, if I want to do something different, I'll say, hey, I would like there to be a new spell. I think it would be, you know, second level. I think it would do X, Y and Z. Can we do that? Um, and so, and, you know, I have the advantage of having worked in this in the game design side for so long mm-hmm. Uh you know, I have a fairly instinctive grasp of how it all works, but of course you all, <laughs> every, every time anybody writes a script, you're always going to get burned where there's that one scene where you thought you knew how a spell works. And then somebody goes, <laughs> Oh, you should go back and read that description again. And then you go, Oh no, oh, I got it wrong. <laughs> and that's, I mean, but that's been true since, you know, I was writing the Pathfinder novels, you know, that I've had that experience many times. So I know how to deal with it. Well, and the other thing is that I, uh, and this is a thing that, you know, occasionally drove my colleagues nuts is, uh, I'm really, I can do the rules, but I don't really care about rules that much. Mm. I'm so much more a story gameplay setting kind of guy. Um, which means that, you know, like when I was creative director for Starfinder, like I knew that wasn't my strength, so I didn't try to do it. You know, I just mm-hmm. was the one there with the design team being like, hey, can we help guide this? But, you know, I don't need to be the one calculating the damage curve. Like, that's not my skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so it's always it's always funny when I meet people who are really into the crunch and somebody will ask me a question about a rule and I'll be like, oh, I have no idea. I'll be like, what? <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the game that you worked on it's like yeah and i worked with some very talented rules designers and also <laughs> i have read like seven versions of that rule between when it started and when it went to print so i don't know i don't remember which one went in the book you know yeah. and it's uh the graphic novel is out june 21st i believe yeah so the first well the first issue like the mm. so it's coming out in two ways it's got the sort of monthly floppy that you can get from your local comic store and that mm. the first one hits in june and is then bi-monthly so every other month 
every month it's either Pathfinder or Starfinder has a new comic out, so they kind of alternate. Cool. Um, but if you just want to skip the floppies and the pull lists and just get the whole thing, there's actually a Kickstarter right now from Dynamite where you can reserve the hardcover collection of the whole thing. So if folks want to just jump in on that and just be done, uh, that's a great way too. Um, and you also have Dark Hearts coming out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that hits. Yeah. That hits in six days. Uh, or uh, sorry, sorry. No, I don't know when this comes out. It's 12 days from now, but it's June 6th. Mm-hmm. And so Dark Hearts is my first young adult novel. Um, and it's young adult contemporary. It's set in Seattle. And it's oh, nice. a queer romance all about falling in love with the boy who stole your chance to be a rock star. So <laughs> the idea is... I love that. Yeah. So the, the idea is the main character, David, uh, you know, in middle school, he formed a rock band with his best friends, but then everybody's egos got big and he stormed out. And then as soon as he did, the band got famous without him. So now he's, he's 17. His former best friends are world renowned pop stars and he's stuck in high school. So he's super bitter. Um, But then, uh, you know, tragedy throws him and the lead singer back into contact. And as they start sort of like rekindling their friendship in spite of themselves, uh, they end up realizing that they're into each other. And so they start this whole secret romance, but as they do, David starts to think, oh, well, maybe this is my chance to weasel my way back into the band and to this life of fame and fortune that I've been denied. Uh, But as you can imagine, anytime you start thinking, oh, my new boyfriend is also my path to success. uh, Mm. That gets real (laughs) messy real quick. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so I think it's super fun. Like, it's a very light, funny book. uh, And it draws a lot on my own sort of background, both, you know, the coming out elements are very much drawn from my own experience as a you know queer guy coming up in Seattle, but also a lot of it is about sort of being a teenage musician and that feeling of having missed your shot. And mm. I definitely had that because, you know, I started a punk band when I was 15 and well, we never got famous. Like we did all right for ourselves. You know, we played a lot of clubs and got on the radio. Um, nice. But I can remember being 18 and seeing bands younger than me starting to like blow up and getting signed and mm-hmm. thinking, well, that's, that's it. I've missed my shot. Like I'm, I'm washed up. I'm a has been, you know, at 18. And I think a lot of kids are walking around with that same feeling of like, if I didn't make it by now, I'm never going to make it. Mm-hmm. And what do you, what do you do with yourself when the person you thought you were going to become, like you thought you were going to grow up and become a rock star. You didn't now what? And so that, for me, that's a lot of what the book is about, is just that question of what do you do when the labels you use to apply to yourself uh, no longer apply? I was going to ask you about music, because we've mentioned it a few times during yeah. uh, the recording. Do you, what do you play? Well, I play uh, guitar and bass, and I sing. Um, and I do some, like, you know, programming and whatnot in music software. But I'm primarily mm-hmm. thinking of myself as, you know, a guitarist and a bassist. But I, uh, okay. I played for years in... You know, I a punk band when I was a teen, like punk and hardcore. And then in my early 20s, I was in sort of a hardcore progressive metal band uh, for about four years. And that's the one that kind of got the biggest. Um, And that was super fun. And now I just play with whoever I can. You know, I've got sort of a a cheesy, you know, arena less arena rock band um, (laughs) with a bunch of other friends. But of course, you know, I'm I'm 39 now. And at some point you start uh 
scheduling band practice between everybody's, you know, nap times and babysitters can get a little bit complicated. Uh, so Mm -hmm. it's mostly just for fun these days, but I'll, I'll do all sorts of stuff. Like I've done musical theater. Uh, you know, I was before the pandemic, I was playing in the band for a theater troupe that would perform, uh, the entirety of star Wars in the park every weekend. in August. (laughs) And so, yeah. So I was just like playing electric guitar, doing the star Wars soundtrack as, you know, people ran around doing this low budget star Wars. Like it was, it was hilarious. Like R two D two was a girl on roller skates with a slide whistle. Like, oh yeah, it was yeah. so funny. That's the coolest um, thing I've ever heard. A hundred percent. But so yeah, I just I love making music in any form. Are you working on any current like music projects right now? Uh, yes, and it it breaks my heart because I've had uh, I've got a new EP that's just solo stuff that is almost done. I literally just need to do Ooh. the final listen through and like you know check all the engineering stuff uh but with dark hearts coming out and promoting that in the comic and also revising my next novel which is due soon too oh my God, there's so much going on for there's you so much going on which is why this album has sat at 99 percent done for like <laughs> three months and just every morning i kind of look at it and go not today <laughs> so wait I, I know this might be jumping the gun a bit what's this next novel is it the dark oh, it's sequel, a, or is uh, it... it's not a sequel, but it's another queer young adult romance set also in the Seattle area. Uh, this nice. one's about a teenage ghost hunter. Um, and oh, so, I'm in hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, so it's it's fun, and but we're at that point right now where like you know you think you're done, you send it to your editor, and then the editor comes back and goes, "This is good, but," <laughs> and so now I'm now I'm fixing all of the butts, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but. Uh, but fortunately, you know, even while that album has been sitting there undone, I have gotten to do some other music. Like, uh, I got to write the intro and outro music for the Dark Hearts audiobook, which was super oh, fun. Whoa. Really yeah, right? Like, I'd always sort of, you know, I'm a huge audiobook fan. And every time I would hear them, they always have that some little bit of music that's the intro and the outro. And I always thought, well, somebody's job is to write those jingles. You know, like, who is making that? Mm-hmm. And so when I you know, sold this book and uh, Macmillan audio picked up the audiobook rights, uh, I just asked them, I said, Hey, where do you get this music? And can I apply to be the composer for it? And they went, Oh yeah, sure. Go for it. And that. so I just wrote a song and sent it to them and they said, yeah, this is great. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really fun. That was kind of a bucket list item. Cause I've been enjoying so- doing a lot of stuff like, like podcast jingles for friends and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. that's amazing uh, um like i know we're jumping a little bit all over the place but i know um me and i are definitely a fan of yeah. horror in that sense and we act we oh, read yeah, your yeah. short story from nightmare and it's we we loved it, it oh, can you which talk one? to us a little bit about oh there's more than one uh, uh well, i'm the new I one i had two come out in like less six months one I read of them the is um, um the one with the uh to with, cheer as they leave you behind. Ah, yeah. yeah, that's that's my favorite. The one that is the uh, time tra- time travel parenting story, all about placental cannibalism. Yeah, yeah really I, enjoyed funny it because we were like doing our prep for this, and I read it and was instantly like Terry, because Terry's a big horror guy. Oh, I am. I like weird horror too, and it was yeah, like, this yeah, is great. Me too. This is... <laughs> I was like, you're gonna love it. And like, I uh, I recently just sold my first short story, so like, oh, I've congrats. been reading a lot. Thank you. Uh, it's coming out in an anthology in the summer, and I'm absolutely pumped because I've been trying to do it for a while. You know, yeah, the yeah, world no, is hard. 
I know how that is, right? Especially, and the first ones are so important. Like, it feels so good, that first acceptance, you know? And then you just yeah. sort of keep rolling that snowball bigger and bigger, you know? Just as, over time, that's how you build a career. But that first one is so important. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed by all the short stories that you had as well. And just like, yeah, good job. Oh, thanks. <laughs> They're great. I, <laughs> again, I loved To Cheer As I Leave You Behind. Is It was great. It was a whole yeah. trip. And it's like... What I love is that it is so understandable. You know what I mean? Right. Like you fully get why they're doing what they're doing, even while you fully know what's fucked up. But I think they do too. It's great. Love it. Well, yeah. that's the thing. I, I guess it's probably not too much of a spoiler to tell the podcast. I guess if you don't want to know anything about the story, skip 30 seconds ahead. But like mm-hmm. the the basic premise is uh, this woman who's like sort of very uh, high powered driven career person um, realizes that anytime she... Uh, eats the placenta from her from her baby, which is the thing people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, she can immediately go back in time a day and inhabit the body of her child and sort of take control. And how she just how she uses that as a parent throughout the child's life and the ramifications of that. Uh, you know, it's one of those weird ideas where you know, somebody asked me where it came from. And I'm like, I have no idea, man. Like that's, <laughs> That was going to be my next question. <laughs> it was just one of those things. I mean, first off, like a lot of my friends have had kids in the last few years. So I think that was just on my on my mind. It felt like we went into the pandemic and nobody had kids and we came out and suddenly there were toddlers <laughs> everywhere. Everyone has um, kids or dogs or a yeah. lot of sourdough. Yeah, but the, um, oh, yeah. the <laughs> eating of the placenta had always seemed sort of bizarre and fascinating to me. Um, and somehow they got connected with time travel and, you know, body control. Um, but I think really the heart of the story for me is about the voyeurism angle. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes it horror, I actually wasn't sure if uh, nightmare would buy it because it is like, it's very weird and very dark, but I wasn't sure if it was horror. And then when honestly, was... I felt weird calling it horror, even though I still believe it. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like, well, it's, it's, it's psychological horror, such a good right? Way. Yeah. And but I think the horror comes from seeing yourself in the main character. Like it's you read this thing, and you see this this urge to like live inside somebody else's body and control somebody else's life, and in empathizing with the main character you see things about yourself that are really gross, you know? Mm. And I think that that's, that's why I think of it as horror is because it makes me feel like guilt. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh yes. And I think it's sort of like, uh, I feel like um, a different horror novel, like horns by Joe Hill has a lot of similar sort of like the horror is in the voyeurism. Like there's a lot more blood and guts in that one, but Mm -hmm. it's all about seeing the, the dirty parts of people that they keep hidden. And I think that there's something to the act of reading that, which is both compelling and unsettling. And so, yeah, so actually I hadn't written short stories in a lot of years. Like, cause once I switched over to doing novels, I kind of didn't have time for it anymore. Um, But I started reading a lot of, you know, Joe Hill and Nathan Ballingrud and, uh, you know, Cass Caw and all these folks who were really just inspiring me. And so I started just let's see if I can write some horror, some horror short fiction, because, you know, here I am spending all my time on young adult contemporary romance. Like I need that palette cleanser. 
And I ended up writing three stories and like two of them ended up at Nightmare and one of them ended up in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. And so I uh, felt very fortunate that those all found homes because I really liked all of them. All big magazines too, so. Yeah, no, it was really- Congrats, it's great. Thanks, yeah. It was one of those things where like, I because I'd stopped writing short fiction so so long ago, those were always kind of like the white whale magazines, you know, the places Mm -hmm. that I wanted to be in someday- and then kind of like stopped before I got there. And so to come back and be like, oh, oh, I'm there now uh, yeah, was really gratifying just as as an artist. And, uh, you know, I I hope it doesn't sound like bragging, but I feel like as an artist, you need to find every little victory you can and just like save it and hold it close because there oh, is sure. so much oh, rejection no. <laughs> in this industry. And I would say, you know, like for you guys, like publishing short stories make yourself a trophy shelf, you know, like put that anthology somewhere that, uh, you know, you can see it, you know, save, save good reviews on your hard drive, do whatever you can, because like the rejection never stops. And if you mm-hmm. ever stop getting rejected in this industry, it's because you're not shooting high enough. <laughs> it's fair. I like that. I like that a lot. No, I definitely, I have plans. I can't wait to to hold it in my hands. I'm trying to think. Uh, I know we're running kind of low on time. Is there anything you want to touch on before we uh, kind of wrap this up? Um, you know, honestly, we've kind of ranged all over the place. So I think that's <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, if anybody wants to talk to me about games or horror or young adult romance or anything like that, uh, you can find me online at jameslsutter.com or uh, I'm on Twitter uh, for as long as that lasts at uh, just James L. Sutter or now on Instagram as well, which is I, you know, I fought kicking and streaming to not be on Instagram. And now that I'm there, yeah. I'm like, oh, this is really nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's funny because my publisher was like, see, like Instagram's great. And I'm like, it's not that I didn't think Instagram would be great. It's that I really don't want to have another social media that I enjoy. Like this isn't, <laughs> it's like, Hey, do you want to start smoking? Like, no, I just, I just quit. I've got yeah. enough vices. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm on there too. So anybody please hit me up if, uh, if you ever have questions. Um, yeah. And yeah, if anyone listening wants to read a great short story, definitely go check that one out that we were talking about. And yeah. We'll link I'm it. We'll link it. Oh, thank you. Pre-order Dark Hearts in a minute. And let us know when oh. that EP comes out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I always try to broadcast stuff, but um, yeah, thank you so much, guys. No worries. I believe Terry had a closing question. No, yeah, okay. yeah, um, please do. Sure. It's a weird one, though, um, oh, because like, mean. okay, sure, because uh, you like horror, we like all that stuff. I'm wondering if there is like a story from your past, like if something weird, like a like, have you ever had like a maybe a paranormal experience or something like that that has been sitting with you and maybe has led you away yeah. or something? Yeah, I have actually. Um, so, and I'll try to make it quick, but um. Growing up, my uncle was a uh, sort of a spiritual leader in the Lummi tribe. Like, I'm not native, but uh, he was. And he, you know, had a lot of connections to other spiritual leaders. And, you know, I was just this, like, little white kid, but he would often take me around with him uh, to stuff just to sort of experience his culture. And one time he took me to uh, this ceremony that... I think was fairly exclusive with a lot of other sort of like high-end medicine men folks. Uh, And like, I'm sure everybody was like, what is this kid doing here? You know, I was like 12, but nobody was going to tell him not to. Uh, So he brings me to this lodge and there's everybody's sort of dancing and, you know, singing and doing kind of all the, 
all the thing that you might imagine. Um, and they bring out this one shaman who had uh, come in from Canada for the night. Uh, and he's dancing and the drums are going and then the drums stop and he points his staff at the ceiling and there's just this boom. And the whole place sounds like it's coming apart. And I like leap out of my seat and I'm like running for the door. And my uncle's like collaring me, you know, sitting me back (laughs) down. Um, And it just sounds like hell is broken loose. And then, you know, the drums and singing start again. He dances some more and then he points his stick at the ceiling and it stops. I'm just like, what the hell? And then afterward, uh, as we're leaving the, the sweat lodge, um, I look at the ground and there's just hail like thick on the ground in like a 60 foot radius around the sweat lodge and nowhere else. And I'm just like, holy shit. And like, you know, we were only a couple miles from where my parents were at the time. But when I got home, I asked like, was there a hailstorm? And they were like, what are you talking about? No, sky was perfectly clear. Um, So that was my one personal encounter with like, I have to say magic, you know, Uh, and I'm not, I am not a particularly spiritual person, but what I have all comes from my uncle. Cause he also had all these, he had all these stories. Like he had been a cop in the eighties on the reservation and had uh, hunted Bigfoot according to him. Um, Like they had a rash of Bigfoot attacks on the reservation. And it's one of those things that sounds like total, you know, BS uh, until you realize that like he had all these other stories, like, He'd been hit by lightning twice. Uh, He'd been like, he was always getting weird stuff where like, you know, some monks would just show up at his door and be like, we're on a vision quest. We're here to take you to Japan. And then he would just go, you know, like, and, and it's one of these things where, you know, my parents were always like, ah, he's, you know, he's full of bullshit, you know, whatever. But I'd be like, there, here's literally like, here's a picture of him with the Dalai Lama. And here's a picture of him with Jimmy Carter, right? Like if those stories were real, why would he be lying about Bigfoot? Like he doesn't need to lie. <laughs> so your so uncle just... is the main character is what I'm hearing. Oh exactly. yeah. Some, some exactly. story he is. Damn. Yeah. And it, it, there was even weirder stuff. Like when he, uh, he died when I was like 16 and there was a lot of magical sort of stuff uh, around that as well. Like mm-hmm. it, uh, I probably don't have time to get into the story here, uh, but um yeah, like he basically like sent a message back from the other side to his wife, as far as people can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all stuff where it's like I can't verify that it's that it's true, but like I don't know, man. That's that's the only thing that's put a question into my brain. So I can't quite be. I can never make atheism go because I've just mm-hmm. seen a little bit too much weirdness, and it's all from him. I love yeah. that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's a story I don't get to tell a lot. Yeah, it's like now I have more questions about it, but unfortunately <laughs> right. we are out of we are out yeah, of time. I know. I should I should probably run, but thank you so okay. much. No, yeah. this has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, we're gonna post a bunch of links in the description. Check out a lot of James' work when you have a chance. Yeah, um, yeah. Right. Thank you, everybody. And again, congrats on the double release and more to come. Thanks. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun month. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Like I said, that was so much fun. It was a blast to do. James was amazing. So much fun to talk to. It's fun to learn that he practically created every single thing I love about Starfinder and Pathfinder. If you enjoyed the format of this show, let us know. I'm interested in doing it again. If you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon. 
We also have a Discord where our entire crew is pretty active on it. We love interacting with all of you who love our show, so thank you so much. And if you enjoyed James, go show him some love on Twitter. Check out Dark Hearts. Check out the Starfinder comic that's coming out. And with that, I'll see you next week in our next episode of No Quest for the Wicked. Until then, farewell.